In the year 1835, a 17-year-old German schoolboy wrote, as was the custom of the day, a school-leaving essay. It's rather a long title, also a custom, a summary of what it was about, translated from German, was this. The union of believers with Christ, according to John 15, verses 1 to 14, showing its basis and essence, its absolute necessity, and its effects. In it, he wrote these words. Union with Christ consists in the most intimate communication with him, in having him before our eyes and in our hearts, and being so filled with the highest love for him, at the same time we turn our hearts to our brothers, whom he is so closely bound to us, and for whom also he sacrificed himself. The name of the schoolboy who wrote those words was Karl Marx. Yes? The same Karl Marx whose books and pamphlets changed the whole face of the 20th century and in whose name countless Christians and people of other faiths have been slaughtered. In his book, Gods That Fail, Sri Lankan author and speaker, thinker, Vinod Ramachandra, relates the story of Karl Marx and asks an important question. How did this earnest, religious-minded youth come not only to reject his religious faith during his university days, but eventually to become perhaps the most famous atheist in history? He explains, and I commend the book to you, that the reasons are complex, but first and foremost was this. His friendship with a group of radical theologians who, under the influence of the rationalism that had recently entered biblical studies in Germany, declared that the gospel narratives were legendary accounts which could no longer serve as a source for the history of Jesus of Nazareth, but only for the history of the early church. Then he concludes... While these theologians continued to call themselves Christians and believed they could retain the truths of Christianity while destroying its historical basis, Marx saw beyond them to the logical consequences of their theories. For if the Gospels did not yield a reliable picture of Jesus Christ, then why should we bother with him at all? And the rest, as they say, is history. 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the city of Jerusalem, the faith of his followers in the Greek city of Corinth was also in danger of being undermined. Not that they realized it, for the issue in question didn't seem to them of great importance or life-threatening. What was it? Their belief that there was no resurrection from the dead. Now, this didn't mean that they didn't believe in life after death. All Greeks and most people in those days believed in life after death. What they believed was that the body was like a prison or a cage, and that when you died, the soul was released from its imprisonment. What they found difficult to believe, if not impossible, even distasteful, was to believe in the resurrection of the body after death. Now, when Paul, the preacher through whom this church came into being, heard about this teaching that was making its way around the church in Corinth, he was deeply disturbed. And so he addressed the issue in this letter that he wrote to them in our New Testament called 1 Corinthians, which we've been studying over this past year. We've got one more to go next week, God willing. We've called our series Keeping First Things First 
because the Christians in Corinth had lost their focus on those matters which were foundational to their faith. And the last of these foundational issues which he addresses in chapter 15 of his letter is the resurrection of the body. We've been looking at this over the past two studies. He begins in verses 1 to 11 by asserting that the good news about Jesus is built on certain truths which are foundational, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was raised to life on the third day, that he was seen by various witnesses. And he goes on to say in the next section, in verses 12 to 19, if this is the case, how can the Corinthians say there is no bodily resurrection from the dead? For Paul quite logically says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not raised from the dead. And with incisive logic he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then preaching about him is a waste of time, faith in him is useless, preachers like Paul are false witnesses about God by claiming that he rose from the dead, the Corinthians are still in their sins, those Christians who have died are lost forever, believers in Christ are more to be pitied than any other people on the face of planet earth. The bodily resurrection of Christ is that important. But in fact, Paul asserts in our last study, we saw this, verses 20 to 34, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of a great harvest of people who will one day rise like him from the grave. When God brings human history to a triumphant conclusion, with a great victory over all his enemies, even death itself, the last. However, Paul is still aware, as we come to the end of this chapter, that there are still some objections from those in Corinth who have unanswered questions about this resurrection of the body. It is these that he addresses, and these are the ones that are answered in this final section. And his answer we can summarize in these famous words, we will, or we shall in the older versions, we shall all be changed. So let's look a little more closely at what he writes, for it contains some of the most fantastic words in the New Testament. You'll have heard them if you've been to a funeral probably. And they need to be heard by all of us before you die. The problem with most people is they only hear these words when it's too late. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58. Page 1156. There are Bibles in the pews. You'll need a Bible in front of you because Paul's argument is quite complex and dense and we need to follow it through ourselves as quickly as we can in the time remaining. And before my voice gives out, I'm looking forward to the resurrection of the body when you don't get colds and sore throats. Verse 35, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps, of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives his own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from stars in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. 
the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word and we praise him for it. This section begins with these two questions which are related. That someone asked, Paul knows the kind of questions that are being asked. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And what follows is a detailed response, and we only have time to look at the sort of surface of it, and I encourage you to study it more deeply yourself. But it's questions about life after death that people still ask today. What happens when you die? What kind of existence will we have? Will we be recognisable, and will we recognise other people who have died? And so on. So in the time remaining, let's look at these answers to questions about the resurrection of the body. I struggled for many hours this week trying to make this intelligible. It's quite a detailed argument. So the way I'm going to do it, I'll give you an outline of what I'm going to do and you can try and stay with me through it all, all right? So what we have here are two pictures in verses 36 to 41. Two bodies in verses 42 to 44, two men in verses 45 to 49, two groups of people in verses 50 to 57, and two conclusions in verse 58. And I'll try not to talk quite so quickly, but I need to get through the material. It's important that we hear what God has to say to us. First of all, then, two pictures in verses 36 to 41. Our English translation is somewhat politer than Paul was. He says someone in the audience asked these questions, and Paul's answer is, you fool. The word fool does not mean someone who's not very bright. It is used in the biblical sense of the Old Testament. A fool is somebody who fails to take God into account in his thinking and equations. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the person who says, discussing the resurrection of the body, how is this possible, has failed to take into account that there is a God who is a God of power. 
And the evidence of that resurrection power of God is staring the fool right in the face in two visible and observable facts that he can see all around him. So Paul says, think about it. When you plant a seed in the ground, it comes to life later as a plant. In fact, the seed will never emerge as a plant unless, first of all, it's buried in the ground. The Lord Jesus, in a different context, spoke about himself in those terms. John 12, verse 24, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains just a single seed but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now the context here is somewhat different, the point he's making. He's talking about the seed and the plant. The resurrection of the body does not mean the resuscitation of a corpse. This is not the living dead. That would be grotesque. It is a transformation into something different, yet still having the same essential life as that which was buried. The point is, there is a transformation. When we lived in Nigeria, we lived out in the bush, in a mud house, and we wandered around the fields one day with the children when they were very small, and the children noticed something beautiful, bright, red, shining in the earth. We've got a jar of them at home, I meant to bring them with me. And they're little seeds, they're beautifully bright pink seeds with little red eyes, uh, black eyes on them. And we thought they were wonderful. When the local people saw them, they said, please, please, don't bury those in the ground. Why not, we said. Well, they said they turn into nasty vines that grow up and choke the plants that we are planting for our food. You'd never have guessed looking at them. The seed was transformed into the plant. Nonetheless, there is a continuity between what is planted and what grows. A shared life between what was buried, as it were, and what comes to life. So it is, Paul says, with the resurrection of the body. What is raised is different from what is buried, and yet there is a continuity between the two, a connection. For the person who is buried in death is the same essential person who is raised up again to life. So God determines the kind of body that will emerge from the seed. And not all bodies are the same. And so the second picture he uses here is to show the great diversity of bodies, which again the fool, if he'll only look, could see. So he talks about the contrast between earthly and heavenly bodies, he calls them. And the point he's making is that here there is variety. You can see it, he says, in different kinds of flesh, physical appearance, between human beings, animals, birds, fish. In a similar way, he says, the heavenly bodies, like the sun and the moon and the stars, have different kinds of splendor or radiance. But God is the one who arranges all these things. God determines them. He's a creative God of infinite power and infinite variety. All of this then answers the question, how are the dead raised? The answer, by God's power. So God can resurrect bodies that have decayed in the ground so there's nothing left. He can resurrect bodies that have been lost at sea. He can resurrect bodies that have been burnt in cremation. He can resurrect bodies that have been blown apart by atomic bombs so there's nothing left of them. God can take that life and bring it to life again. And this then leads directly into the contrast between the bodies that we now inhabit that will one day be buried in the earth and the new bodies that we'll receive afterwards. Two bodies then, verses 42 to 44. The red seed and the green plant were very different from each other. Unless you knew, you would never have made the connection between the vine and the seed. So, what is it that emerges from the grave, from the ground as it were? What will it be like? Or to put it another way that people often ask, will we be recognisable as the people we are? We can be absolutely sure of that fact. 
because by analogy with the resurrection body of Jesus. Think of those verses I read at the beginning. There are the disciples in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews on the first Easter Sunday morning. And Jesus comes and stands among them. How do they know it's Jesus? Well, they recognised him. In fact, later on he said to Thomas, who doubted it all, Thomas, come here, put your hand in my side, put your finger in the nail prints in my hand. It's me. He ate fish with them. He had a physical, not physical, but he had a real body. And yet, in some ways, his body now was different. I don't know how you put it in, in, in scientific terms. The atomic structure, in some way, of his body was different because he could walk through doors. He could appear and disappear at will. And it is this kind of difference that is highlighted here in these verses, 42 to 44, between the body that is sown and the bodies that are raised. Now, this is fantastic news. really is. Look at the body that is sown. He says, the body that is sown is perishable. From the moment we're born, our bodies begin to wear out. And the older you get, the more the process accelerates. In my observation anyway, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Long before you reach your allotted three score years and ten, your body is showing signs of wear and tear, no matter how well you look after it, which you should, and no matter how many bits that doctors manage to replace. Not only that, he says, when it is buried in the ground, it is sown in dishonour. The word dishonour here doesn't refer to moral dishonour, you know, the bad things we've done. It refers to our physical condition. As we get older, our bodies begin to humiliate us, don't they? You know, I'm wearing glasses. I've got a couple of hearing aids, because my hearing's not absolutely brilliant, so my wife keeps saying, put the hearing aids in. I keep having to shout at you, and you're shouting at me, you know? And you see this. Look, look for example, at Muhammad Ali the greatest fighter, heavyweight the world has ever seen. Look at the poor man now, shuffling around, crippled by disease. And that's happening to all of us. And that leads to a third feature of the natural body. He says it's sown in weakness. As we get older, our bodies get weaker, and we need to rest more than we used to do. We cannot do the things that we once did. We need to be helped by others until finally we've got no strength at all. And this is part of our humanity, for he describes the bodies that we live in as our natural bodies. They have built-in redundancy because of sin. The seeds are sown. And I don't care who you are, this is a process that is taking place in your life at the moment, and looking around, it's more apparent in some of us than others, but believe me, it's happening to all of us. Now, here's the great news. One day, God will raise these bodies to life. And those perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. Your new resurrection body will never wear out. It will always be a body in its prime. And instead of being sown in dishonour, it will be raised in glory. The glory that God gave to Adam and Eve before they sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And linked in with this is the fact that our bodies are sown in weakness, but they'll be raised in power, animated by God's life-giving spirit. And the natural body that we live in will be replaced by one that he describes as a spiritual body. Now, you might expect him to say you have a natural body and a supernatural body. And, and you could kind of translate the word as supernatural. But actually, he's making a point to the Corinthians. You see, they thought spiritual and body didn't go together. They were mutually exclusive. But not so, says Paul in verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Listen, I am thankful that when we die, we will not be floating around as disembodied spirits or as some religions claim, absorbed into some amorphous divine mass or whatever it might be. I will be myself, you will be yourself more perfectly, more really, more essentially than you have ever been before. What a prospect. But is it a prospect for everyone? The next section tells us it focuses on two men. This is 45 to 50. There's a play here on the word Adam, which of course means in Hebrew, Adam means in Hebrew, man. Paul contrasts the first man, Adam, with the last Adam, who is Christ. And through our common ancestor, Adam, all of us inherit this natural, physical body made by God from the earth and given life. The first man, Adam, from the earth, a living being. Paul quotes from Genesis 2, 7, the creation account when God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. But as we saw in our last study, through Adam and his rebellion against God, we now have bodies that decay and return to the earth when they die. As we say at the committal service, as we stand by the grave or in the crematorium more frequently these days, and I do this many times each year, we therefore commit his body, her body, to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And that is where the story in our future would have ended, were it not for God's love in sending his son to reverse the process. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but with the Christian you say, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our earthly body, that it may be like unto his glorious body, whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Philippians 3 verse 14, we'll come to it in a moment. Unlike Adam, Christ did not come from earth, but from heaven. The last Adam came from heaven. And rather than the first Adam who received life, he says this second, this last Adam, as it were, is a giver of life, a life-giving spirit. So, what happens? When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you realize that your life is heading for death on the broad road that leads to destruction, and when you turn and put your faith in Christ and turn from that old way of life, something incredible happens. God gives you eternal life. Think of the best-known verse in the Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He who has the Son, said Jesus, has life. A seed of new life is placed within us by God the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus said to those grieving sisters at the grave of Lazarus, their brother, whoever believes in me will, will live even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me will, will never die. Because there is a seed of eternal life. To perish means to be lost forever. To have eternal life means to be assured that even though our natural bodies perish, we have within us the seeds of new life which assure us that one day we'll be raised up to a new life with a new body that will last forever. So, through Christ, and through Christ alone, we're assured that we'll receive a resurrection body like his resurrection body, a spiritual body. The hope and focus of the Christian is that one day we will be like Christ. Just as we have borne, verse 49, the, the likeness of the earthly man, 
so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Here's the verse from Philippians that I quoted too soon. But this is what he says to the Christians in Philippi. It's my favorite verses. But our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they may be like to his glorious body. So having said that, Paul now turns to when and how this change of body will take place. And he says there will be two groups of people that will be affected when it takes place. Verses 50 to 57. The Christians in Corinth thought that with the gift of the Spirit, and especially the gift of tongues, which they thought was speaking the language of angels, they'd already arrived. Heaven on earth had already occurred. But Paul tells them it's not so. It cannot be so, he says. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood, mere mortal human beings, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you try to live in the kingdom of God, in your mere mortal flesh, you won't be able to breathe the air of heaven. You won't survive. God's future kingdom is an eternal kingdom, so our natural bodies, which wear out, will be of no use to us. We must be changed. We will be changed. And unlike the Corinthians who thought that bodies would be no use in the future, in God's kingdom, Paul says you'll need bodies. The best bodies you've ever had to live in this new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells that God will bring into being. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is not a whodunit. A mystery is something that is hidden that God has revealed. And God has revealed to Paul this mystery about when this will take place. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The mystery that is revealed is, we will all be changed. Our natural bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies, like those of Jesus. And when this happens, it will affect two groups of people, obviously, if you think about it. Because when Christ comes again and this moment happens, there'll be people still alive at that moment. Supposing you're a Christian and it happens this evening, which it could. At any moment, what will happen? Well, you won't need to die. But your body will need to be changed. And so that body will need to be changed of those who are still alive. And what about those of our family and friends who have died? They will need new bodies who will need to be raised literally. Bodies that will never die. So he says, those who are still alive, the mortals, will receive bodies that will never die. Like a new set of clothes, they will be clothed with immortality. And the second group, those who have already died, the perishable, will receive bodies that don't wear out, never decay. Like a new set of clothes, they'll be clothed with the imperishable. Of course, it's the same change, the same resurrection body that both groups will receive. And this transformation, here's the fantastic news, this transformation, he says, will take place in an instant. The words used here describe the shortest imaginable moment of time in which something happens before you even have a moment to think about it. He says, in a flash. Literally in Greek, it's the word from which we get atom. The smallest indivisible, well, people thought in those days, the smallest indivisible atom. A split second. The twinkling of an eye is the time it takes to blink your eye. And the words at the last trumpet, don't make a mistake here, it doesn't mean there'll be loads more trumpets warning you this is about to happen. The last trumpet is the final trumpet, which signals the end of time and announces the return of Christ in glory. And when that moment appears, 
Paul says something will happen. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Because there will be no more death. Death will be destroyed. It will no longer have any power. For it will have been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. So he says the Christian can sing that song which celebrates the fulfilment of another prophecy and taunts death. Hosea 13 verse 14. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And then Paul adds, because he's a great theologian, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Death's two allies are sin, which brought death into the world, and the law of God which made us aware of our sin and led to condemnation. But now both have lost their power. The stinger has been removed. The deadly sting has been detoxicated through the victory of Christ. And so he says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks to Jesus, as someone has put it, death stung itself to death at the cross of Jesus. Now, if this is the case, certain conclusions follow. And there are two in verse 58. Despite their fallibilities and their immaturity, Paul still sees the Corinthian Christians as my dear brothers. And so he urges them, look, if this is true, if this is going to happen, and could happen at any moment, you need to avoid something and do something. Negatively, he says, let nothing move you. Stand firm on this foundation that Christ died for our sins, was raised to life, and we shall live with him forever. Don't let anything or anyone move you from this foundation. That is what happened to Karl Marx. And the consequences were enormous. Now the consequences for you being moved from your faith will certainly not be so life-shattering and history-changing. Probably anyway. But at very least we will lose our own hope. Don't let anything move you. This is the ground of our faith. It is based on fact that Christ was raised bodily from the dead. Disprove that. You've destroyed the Christian faith. Stand on it and you have a hope that will keep you in life, in death. As we sang, no fear in life. No fear in death. This is the hope of Christ in me. Positively, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You might expect Paul at this point to urge them, as he does in other places talking about the return of Christ, to live holy lives, because Christ is coming again. But the focus here is on the work of the Lord. What is that work? It is proclaiming this message of hope to the world in which we live. The wonderful news of the gospel of God's victory over death and sin through Christ. If it is true that Christ was raised from the dead and that those who trust in him will live forever in bodies that will never wear out, then surely the most important thing is to tell other people about it. For everyone will be raised. Some to life, and some to judgment. Some to salvation, some to condemnation. So while there is opportunity, before the last trumpet sounds, for when that happens there will be no more time to repent, to change your mind, for it will happen in an instant. And so, we're really back where we were this morning. If you're here in Charlotte Chapel, the message is the same. If you're not a believer in Christ this evening, turn to him while you can. Why would you turn away from such a hope, from such a prospect? I know some of you younger people, you think you're going to live forever. Your bodies will never wear out. I used to think that. Take it from me, it will happen. Your body will wear out one day. Maybe sooner than you think. And what is your prospect then when you face death? 
Only in Christ is there hope. And so I appeal to you again this evening to turn to Christ. But I speak to those who have this hope. Make sure your foundations are firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And here's the conclusion. Because you know your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. The best way to spend your life living in the hope of Christ. Sharing in the hope of Christ. That's why Emily's going to Nepal. It's a nice place. She'll enjoy herself there, I'm sure. But the real prospect is to share something by the way that she lives with the team working there of the love of Christ, the people who live in that wonderful country. That is our hope. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I hope you have that hope. And I hope it's a sure hope, a confident hope based on firm foundations. The greatest hope possible because you know that no matter what happens, whatever may happen, it is well with your soul. So we're going to sing that great hymn.